0: Let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20 this evening. Acts chapter 20. As a pastor, occasionally you have to preach on things that you don't necessarily feel comfortable preaching on occasion. And uh, sometimes preaching on giving feel like uh, standing up there and uh, people may think that you're trying to pad your own wallet and that sort of thing, but yet the Scriptures speak of those things. This also is one of those types of messages that I uh, necessarily uh, w- would necessarily want to preach, but I think it is important, and that is the responsibility of a pastor and his role in a healthy church. And... Um, One of the reasons that uh, we need to understand this rightly is so that we we don't see the pastor as a CEO or the pastor as uh, some other sort of uh, um, self-taught type of way, but that we understand how the pastor is to function according to the Scriptures. And um, last week we saw that deacons are really indispensable to the church that the church cannot operate without deacons. That every church from the institution of the first church included deacons, and it also included a pastor. And uh, so, what we've transitioned to from our, our study of the healthy church, we've looked at um, we've looked at all the essential elements of the healthy church, how uh, we get there. And now we're looking at the structure. What is the church made up of? What what makes the church what it is? So last week we looked at deacons. This week we'll look at the office of the pastor. Next week we'll look at the congregation. And then on the, the following week we'll talk about membership and what that means to a healthy church. And as we talked about deacons last week, one of the responsibilities, in fact the primary responsibility of the deacon is that they are to promote the spiritual well-being of the church. I said that they are like mufflers or shock absorbers, that they, they uh, settle strife, they reduce strife, and they also help in doing so, and they take on administrative tasks, they take on all sorts of uh, responsibilities that have to do with the church, and they do that in order for the pastor to be able to do his primary responsibility, which we'll see today, and that is to preach and to pray. We saw that in Acts chapter 6, that the apostle says, uh, we think that this is needful that these widows be taken care of. That's a needful thing. But we cannot give ourselves to it specifically because it would take us away from our primary responsibility, which is to preach and to pray. It's not that one position is better than the other. I often uh, think of it like a police officer. If a police officer were to pull over the president of the United States, we wouldn't say that the police officer is in any way has a has a higher position than than the president. But that he has a responsibility to to do his job, and and the president himself has a responsibility to to obey the traffic laws. I guess if he were ever driving himself, I don't know why he would ever be, but. Um, but it's not that one is better than the other in any way. It's simply that they have different functions. We see these varying functions or these, this hierarchy of functions within the Godhead even. That God the Father is over God the Son and God the Son is over God the Spirit. You see this in the home with the husband being the head of the wife. And just because that, that there are different functions doesn't make one person better than the other. Simply, they have different responsibilities, and that's exactly what we see in the church. So why are pastors given to the church? Why are they given to the church? Before we answer that question, let's first look at some of the struggles that the pastor has to undertake. And we'll see those, these in chapter 20 of Acts, and verses 27-30. through 30. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul here is speaking to the elders, the the pastors at the church in Miletus. And um, and he gives specific instructions that pastors here to watch over the flock. Watch out for these savage wolves that will come. A lot of times they don't attack overtly, they don't uh, they they don't call out what they're going to do. It's all subversive and, and even covertly, it's people from your own midst will rise up from among them from from your own midst and they will lead people astray. So pastors specifically have a responsibility to to watch out. And uh, you noticed in verse 28 that there are at least two ways that the pastor is referred to. In the middle of the verse it says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is one word in the Greek. And then to shepherd the church of God. This is another word that's used of a pastor. Overseer, shepherd. And then if you look back up to verse 17, you see the third word that is used. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And if you read this passage as a whole, what you see is that Paul is using all three of these terms interchangeably to refer to the same office. He's not saying that there are three offices within the church in addition to the deacons. There's the elder, there's the overseer, and then there's the shepherd. No, these three are all same in in one person, so he uses them interchangeably. Uh, to show the different types of responsibilities. The word that we use, pastor, is actually only used one time and that's in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll we'll look at that passage a little bit later. But it has the idea of shepherding or leading. And um, if you've ever been in a position of leadership, which I, I think we all have, you recognize that people by nature don't like to have authority over them. In fact, many of our sins, if not all of our sins, could be traced back to the fact that we don't like to have God as our authority. God tells us something to do, and we say, no God, I don't want You to be my authority. I want to be my own authority. I want to do what I want to do. And so, perhaps when you think of the office of the pastor, you recoil. You think of the the, the authority and... and uh, and uh, you, you don't like to to, to uh, submit in that way. Perhaps you have good reason to think that way. Maybe you've been burned by too many pastors in the past. Maybe it was a father, or a husband, or a boss, or or a pastor from another church. I don't know. Whoever it was, perhaps they abused their position of authority and. So, as a result, you vowed never to trust another person in that position. Now, if you don't uh, feel that way yourself, uh, perhaps you're trusting by nature. If you don't feel that way yourself, I'm sure you know of people who do, that they, they are just appalled at any type of authority that figure that is over them. And it is true that many leaders do abuse their authority. We can all think of examples where authority figures have ruined their marriages. They have ruined the government. They have ruined churches. And uh, we look to people like that, and, and as a result, we sometimes have a crooked eye with any person who's placed in authority over, over us. And so, in one sense, it is wise to to take caution and to recognize that all leaders are fallen. There's no perfect leading figure on this earth. So we should recognize that and that all leaders are susceptible to abusing their position as authority. But we also need to recognize that that does not in any way justify an unhealthy suspicion of all authority or uh, a an innate distrust of them. Like, it doesn't matter who they are, I I just can't trust them. A lot of times we say that that trust is to be earned. And there is a sense in which that is true, that we need to be careful about, um, about who we follow. But there's also a sense in which we need to not blindly follow, but we need to follow without question. That's the nature of authority that we follow them even when we don't necessarily agree with them. So to reject authority really is short-sighted and self-destructive. It really only hurts ourselves. Mark Dever says that a, a world without authority is like desires without restraints. A world without authority is like a car without controls or an intersection without lights it's a game with no rules it's like a home with no parents or a world without a god all of those situations could last for a little while he says but before long it will seem pointless and then cruel and then finally tragic we cannot live without authorities now my experience for these nearly 2 years of ministry have been filled with joy and i've been thankful for the opportunity and i Tell everyone who asks me about this ministry that that it is a great joy to to work and serve at this church. And I can honestly agree with um, Peter in First Peter five two, where he tells pastors the shepherd the flock of God, but don't do it under compulsion. Do it willingly. Don't don't do it as an obligation. And that's exactly the way I feel. I don't feel like I am obligated to do it, uh, but rather I do it willingly. It is a joy to do it. Now certainly there are disappointments, there are struggles, but as Paul says, our sorrowing is not without rejoicing. The hardest part of ministry and perhaps the hardest part of any part of life is opposition. That people would be opposed to to what I am doing. Turn to first Corinthians chapter sixteen with me, if you would. First Corinthians chapter sixteen. in verse 9. Paul says, For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. As a leader in the church of Christ, living in a world that is in rebellion against God, there is going to be opposition. There is going to be opposition from outside the church, but sadly there is, even is going to be opposition from within the church. And that shows up in strife, shows up in discouragement, it shows up in frustrations, shows up in perhaps complacency. And the the goal that we should have as a church is to to eliminate these types of things and rather work towards a unified center. That we are unified around the Word of God, working against a world that is in rebellion against God. And the nature of the pastoral ministry is such that, that in some senses, what is being said is a an aroma of life to those who are believers, but it's aroma of death to those who are perishing. That that they see the ministry as something that is that is not um, exciting, not important so there will be opposition, but despite all that, there is great joy in leading a a church who is uh, desiring to follow God. So there are um, the, the 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 ministry of the pastor. I believe is very important. The making of the pastor is found in First Timothy chapter three. Turn back there. This is the passage that we looked at last week. It's actually the passage right before the one we looked at the qualifications for deacons now we look at the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work he desires to do An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and in the snare of the devil. There is a debate you probably heard about among Bible-believing churches as to whether we should... Uh, we should follow the system where there's an office of elders. In other words, elder rule, multiple pastors, multiple elders leading the church, or if there should be a single pastor leading the church, or uh, a pastor over some assistant pastors, the same sort of uh, model. And uh, so we could ask that question of this passage, and there are lots of biblical arguments that I would point to in order to suggest that the Scriptures teach a, um, a a singular pastor. But I think one, one of the best ones actually is right here in this passage. You notice the qualifications here in verse 1 is for the office of overseer, singular. Now, that wouldn't mean a whole lot unless um, verse 8 were there. Notice verse 8. We're not there, excuse me. Verse 8, deacons likewise. So, if Paul wanted to stay singular, he would say, the deacon would would follow these qualifications. The pastor would follow these. But instead, he says singular overseer, plural deacons. And uh, so that's one of the, the arguments that is used for understanding of one pastor or one pastor over multiple pastors. And like this list, uh, like the list we looked at last week, the list of qualifications for the deacons. What you find in this list is that with most of these qualifications, they are not very remarkable, are they? They are, in many ways, a lot of them, are not, requ- or, or are required of every single member in the church. Okay, obviously the, the husband of one wife can't, can't work for a, a lady, but you understand what I'm saying. For the most part, these qualifications are required of everyone. The first one is that he is above reproach. We saw this last week with regard to the deacons and that simply means that, that if you observe his life and his conduct, that he would be beyond uh, the point where an accusation would be able to be charged against him. If, a, if an accusation came to him, you would look at his life and say, you know what, I know him and, and from what I know, I can't see that possibly happening. Now, as I said earlier, we have to understand that everyone is fallen, but, but there is a higher standard that is given to the, the pastor. Husband of one wife, that again, he is a one-woman type of man, that he's, uh, he's focused on his wife alone, that he doesn't have a roving eye, and uh, isn't involved in inappropriate speech or physical contact with other women. Next is temperate. And then prudent, that he is wise in what he does, that he carries about himself, always seeking to have the Scriptures honored. And then respectable, this is probably an overarching qualification regarding his lifestyle, his conduct, his speech. And then hospitable, that he's willing to take in uh, people in his own home and um, and, uh, take care of people's needs and things like that. And then here's the one that, that would not be something that's required of everyone, and that is able to teach. This really sets the pastor apart from other um, service ministries. And as I said earlier, doesn't make him any better than anyone else. Simply is a requirement of his position that he is able to teach. And as we'll see here in a little while, the reason that's so important is because that is one of the primary functions of his position that he is able to teach if he can't teach then he can't be a pastor next is that he is not addicted to wine verse 3 there that he's not addicted to wine that he's not addicted to really anything if you want to take the larger context that he's um, not taking into account uh the freedoms that he has even in christ and and using them in a wrong way to be addicted to something and then verse eleven, not pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. I think those all kind of go together. The NIV says not violent, so it would be not pugnacious, not pugnacious, but gentle. He's uh, he, he's not going to fly off the handle very easily. He's not a uh, a man who who um, who is quick to become angry, but instead he is gentle and peaceable. And then the next one here in verse 3 is that he is free from the love of money. Pretty self-explanatory there. And then verses 4 and 5 give us um, one that's similar to what we saw last week, and that is is he must be a good manager of his own house. And the reason that we see that he must be a good manager is found in verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The point is being made in the form of a question. And the answer to that question is he can't. If he can't manage his own household, he can't manage the church of God because there are greater issues at stake. And so uh, it's the idea of being faithful in small things, but even faithful in few things. And this is a requirement of deacons as well. And then verse 6, that he is not a new convert similar to what we saw last week with the deacons, that they were to be first tested before they were put into this position. So he's not to be a new convert. um, That uh, he is committed to selfless service and this isn't something that just kind of sprung upon him or is this a quick idea that he had after he came to salvation, but that it is uh, um, a result of a life of service really, or at least several years of service. And then verse 7, He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And we could say in summary that the pastor should be a man of high moral character, possessing all the Christian virtues, and I think this is important, that he is continually growing in them. And the reason that this office is so important is because it's not that simply he is the shepherd or the leader, but that he really is the under-shepherd. And what the shepherd, the pastor, is actually doing is is following Christ. And and it's not a case where, if you think about it with regard to a shepherd leading a flock, the shepherd's never on the back side of the flock. He's always out, and, out ahead. And the sheep know his voice and they follow him. Right? And that's the idea that the... the character of the pastor needs to be such that it is something that can be followed. He is a person that can be followed as he follows Christ. It should not be where he comes along the back and is beating them uh, into submission, but that they are gladly willing to follow. And so it takes careful leadership and and, uh, careful protection of that or uh, careful attention to that character that God is developing And so uh, this leads us to the responsibilities of the pastor. Okay, we've seen the qualifications and some of the opposition that comes to the office of the pastor, but now we want to look at the responsibilities of the pastor. There are all sorts of expectations that we naturally put on the pastor. After all, he is paid to serve the church, and so, and sometimes we get the idea that, well, because he is the paid person in the church, then then uh, he can do these responsibilities. We'll sit back and and, uh, enjoy the show type of idea. But what we need to understand, as we saw last week, is that the pastor has specific responsibilities and that he should be accomplishing them. And certainly because he is paid, he shouldn't be uh, being above board in that regard. So I would say that there are at least three main responsibilities that the pastor has. And uh, these come from Mark Dever's book, on the nine marks of a healthy church. The first one he calls grazing or simply being a leader that he is a teacher and he does it by example. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In other words, he helps he leads the sheep to a place where they can graze in the field. That they can graze in the word of God. This is one of the primary uh or I should say, it is the primary responsibility of the pastor that he is feeding the sheep on the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. "...I solemnly charge you, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season." Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The pastor's fundamental role is in the church is to feed the sheep. He is to, to lead them to the Word of God so that they can they can feed on it. Turn to Titus chapter one. Next book, over. Titus chapter one. And here again we see some. Um, Qualifications, Paul lists again for Titus here in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, but we're going to pick it up in verse 9. He says, For the overseer should be holding fast the faithful word, which is in, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refuse those who contradict. He is to be strong in in doctrine, recognizing the dangers that could come from straying from the doctrine of the faith. And so, uh, so there's a great responsibility there to feed the people of God so that He could exhort people in right doctrine and then oppose those who refute right doctrine. The danger of that, obviously, is that false teachers can come in and teach something other than the real truth of the Gospel And the pastor should be able to handle the Word well in that regard. But not only should he lead the people to the Word of God, but he also should be leading them by example. That his life should be marked by genuine Christianity. And that includes that he is able to feed both, uh, really has a responsibility to feed those who are drinking the milk of the Word and those who are eating the meat of the Word. And, uh, and he, at the same time, needs to be clarifying the Gospel for unbelievers and showing its importance for believers. And so there's a balance that, that is required. You know, there are lots of things that, uh, that, that pastors could be doing with their time. There's lots of things that I could be doing with my time. There's all sorts of programs. There's events. There's personalities to deal with. But none of those things Programs, events, and uh, special personalities are not important to the health of the church. Okay, they're, they're not vital. They're not required. You see, if the pastor fails to provide food to the people of God, then the sheep are going to starve. The pastor's fundamental role is to lead the flock to feed on the satisfying food of God's Word. And so, much of his time should be spent learning the word for himself and being and finding out the best way to be able to teach it to other people. So the first uh, responsibility is to help the sheep to be able to graze. And then secondly, it is to guide them. Turn back to first Timothy chapter four, it is to guide them. And that means that, that the pastor should be strengthening and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Paul writes to Timothy, this young preacher, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself as an example of those who believe. And this happens... Uh, people are willing to follow when, verse 16, Timothy is willing to and other pastors are willing to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. pastor has a responsibility to guide people, equipping them to do the work of the ministry. And I get that wording from Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the passage in which we find the only time that this word pastor is used in the New Testament. It's used here in verse 11. Paul says, And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. What, what, What did God give those for? Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The final goal here should sound familiar. It is that believers are growing in Christ. Verse 13. That they're growing to a place of spiritual maturity. And that's a continual process. No one has arrived spiritually. Not even me. And so we need to recognize that we are constantly in need of growth and change. And the pastor is there, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. That he he spends his his, uh, his time learning the Word and learning to teach the Word so that it can be given to the people and that they are equipped to do what God has called the church to do. Now that does not exempt me from doing administrative work at all. First um, Timothy 5.17 says that Paul tells Timothy as you are directing the affairs of the church, in other words, that you are an overseer of the things that are going on. So it doesn't exempt him from administrative responsibilities. But the pastor is fundamentally different from the deacons in that the pastor is required to be able to teach. And, uh, and so he should not only help the sheep graze, but also guide them in the way of, uh, of life and, and of health. And then thirdly, the pastor is to be guarding the flock. We saw this in Acts chapter 20, that a faithful shepherd, a faithful pastor, is to be watching out for the dangers that are ahead or the dangers that are coming in within our own midst. Most of these enemies we think would come from outside. But in fact, Paul says otherwise. He says that they'll actually come from within the church. They will rise up and they will lead believers astray. So pastors have to be able to encourage in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose God. What is it that motivates a pastor? We'll finish here. What is it that motivates a pastor? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay, as I said, there are people who who abuse the position or the offer, office of pastor, and so they are motivated by wrong things, maybe power or uh, desire for popularity or uh, position or or uh, money. Uh, but but the scriptures give to us that is us pastors um, godly motivations that that we should be following. First Peter chapter two verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. In His steps, We could go to multiple passages like Romans 12 verse 1 where it says that because of the mercies of God, you ought to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Hey, this, this verse is not fundamentally speaking to pastors, but like you, uh, my motivation should come from what God has done for me. When I step back and recognize where I should be apart from God, when I step back and recognize that I deserve His wrath, and yet He has poured upon me His favor because of Jesus Christ, then that should motivate me to serve, to be willing to give my life like Christ gave His life. But not only should I be motivated by what God has done for me, but also chapter 5, verse 4, what God will do for me. What God has promised to those who are faithful. 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, this is speaking specifically to pastors, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, if you are faithful in the ministry which God has given to you, then you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So not only what God has done, but what God has promised to do. And then thirdly, what God is doing in me. That if God is continually changing me, I should want to see that change in other people. And so that should motivate me as well. I think the last motivation, um, certainly there are probably others, but this is not an exhaustive list, but... But the last one would be what God is doing in you. That as I see God work in your life as the word takes root in your heart and and begins to change you. And that that provides me greater motivation to continue on and to and to work hard at preparing to to teach and to preach the scriptures. As your pastor I watch out for your souls. I'm concerned about your spiritual life. I pray for you regularly by name. I pray for your spiritual growth. I pray for your uh, growth in the love for the Scriptures and a knowledge of it. And that you would have the opportunity to witness to people around you. And that you would not succumb to the temptation of sin where Satan would love to take one of you or all of you and pull you away from the faith so that he could mar the name of Jesus Christ. I pray for you regularly. And for me, one of the most exciting things is to see steps of spiritual growth. To see people who were once opposed to a certain way of life or once who were marginally following God, see them take great steps of faith. Or to see people have a fresh perspective of God's glory, God's greatness. Or to see people recognize their sin in a greater way. That, to me, brings great motivation. And that is no testament necessarily to my ability, but it is a testament to the Word of God, that despite me, God can still use the Scriptures the power of the Scriptures, when we make that the center of what we do, that God can use the Scriptures to change our lives. Change doesn't happen automatically. It requires work on my part. It requires work on your part. But thanks be to God that He is working working continually in, in each of us, and I pray that that would continue. And so, I heartily say with John, as he wrote in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, that I find no greater joy than when believers are walking in truth. And, uh, and if, if it's not enough motivation to see what God has done for me or what God will do for me or what God is doing in me, it certainly it's a great motivation to see what God is doing in you. So one of the best ways that you can be an encouragement to me or whoever your pastor is is to simply take the Christian life seriously. To yes, pray for me. I w- I would covet your prayers as the the, uh, the struggle against sin is just as strong as it as it is with you, if not more, because of uh, because of how Satan would certainly like to to have his way with with uh, me and with the the name of this church. I would covet your prayers, yes, but I would love to see. Um, Also, the the growth in godliness, I'd love to continue to see God be glorified uh, through our church. And so let us purpose together as a church to take responsibility for ourselves, to work hard to help others out and make sure that every member of our church is participating in the body, that each member is taking the spiritual life seriously. And so that our ultimate goal will be that not that one person is praised, not certainly that I can be lifted up as some great thing, but that, but that God is honored as He leads us through Jesus Christ, as He is presented to us in the Word. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, I thank you that you can uh, use the. Um, Many times unclear words that come from my mouth, and uh, in uh, in many ways I do feel unworthy of the task. Uh, who is adequate for such things to be able to take eternal truths and make them clear to a world that is dying, to a to a church that that uh, that is in no way perfect, and and certainly no church is, but what an amazing task it is for, for me to try to take these eternal truths and make them clear. And we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit that helps in this regard, that uh, helps in our weaknesses, and, and even as Jesus Christ intercedes for us continually at the right hand of Your throne, He, he um, helps us to see our need and our, uh, our need to understand and love the Scriptures more. And we just pray that You would help our church to, to uh, work together in a way that would be pleasing to You. We pray that um, each area of ministry would recognize its responsibility before You. We pray that each person would see their responsibility to uphold others and to encourage others and to to make sure that they are growing themselves spiritually. And that can only happen through the power of Your Word as the Spirit presents it to us. And So we pray that You'd help us to be regularly uh, involved in in the services, that we would be regularly reading and understanding the words for ourselves, that we'd be searching the Scriptures daily to see if what is being said is true. And that is not an easy task in a world that's fast-paced and full of things to do pray that you give us the time and the energy and the, and be able to see the need to take these things as seriously as we possibly can. There's nothing greater that we could possibly do in our, our lives than to give it in service for You. And whether that be in the workplace or in our neighborhoods or in our family, it doesn't have to be a an assigned position like I have, but it does need to be a part of who we are. So we pray that You'd help each of us in that regard. That we would, we would take this highest calling of, of uh, loving You and displaying Your glory to the people around us. We pray that You'd help us now. In Jesus' name, Amen.